So what does that mean? Uh, license, <laughs> license, marriage, and family therapist. We, we talked about that the first thank you. week. But thank, okay. for, thank you for making me realize some people want to hear that. So licensed marital and family therapists. We want to give Jim plenty of time to talk about family of origin, and uh, I'm eager, eager to hear it. We, we've just been around a long time. That's what that means. <laughs> <laughs> I actually, you probably didn't know this. Uh, just a, uh, I tried to hire uh, Dr. Jim in St. Louis before he decided to move here and move into Gail Napier's yeah. place. Love this guy. Welcome, Jim. Well, I guess my take on that and most experience would be we've been in therapy more than the other therapist, <laughs> basically. Well, I'm, I'm delighted to be here. Uh, and have a part in this. I just looked over your schedule for this quarter and I'm quite impressed. I told my wife before we came in it would be great for me to just steal all these people and have them come over and do this at Harpeth Hills. Um, and incidentally, whenever I visit over here I see familiar faces. It seems like you've gotten some good people from Harpeth Hills and um, I'm really not resentful about that. You know, I, I assume there are plenty of uh, wonderful places to worship and as long as people find a place that they feel like they really fit in and can grow in their faith, then I'm all for that. Uh, you know, over the years, as a marriage and family therapist, I have uh, gone to therapists to deal with some of my own issues. And sooner or later, they get around to inquiring about my parents and my siblings and, you know, whether I grew up in the country or grew up in the city or inner city. Uh, it, it, it seems like therapists have a, a, a great interest in knowing about the soil out of which we grow. And a number of years ago, if you spoke of family of origin, you probably assumed you were talking to a therapist because we were about the only ones talking about family of origin. But now it's become a very common expression. Uh, lots of people talk about, oh yeah, my family of origin, and we realize that that represents uh, whatever the configuration was that we grew up in. Mom, dad, stepmom, stepdad, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And so this morning we're going to think a little bit together about some of the impact that we experience as human beings growing up in a family. And I'd like for us to just start by brainstorming uh, in a general way. What are some of the more obvious things that get passed down from family of origin that get passed down from the previous generation or generations. How about expectations about husbands and wives interact? Okay, absolutely. Uh, what your role is going to be in terms of uh, being a husband or a wife. Good. Whatever. What else? How to manage finances. Okay. All all sorts of uh, practical things. Uh, what about on a more global level? What would be some of the things that get passed down? You know, I'm thinking Hair like, color, yeah, your physical characteristics. Uh, you know, it's not uncommon for us to, uh, as we grow older, start taking on some of the appearance of parents, father or mother. And uh, in some cases that pleases us and probably in some cases we think, whoa, you know. Uh, comedian once said is he was getting up in years and he looked in the mirror he said he got out of bed one morning and he was you know kind of befuddled and he looked in the mirror and uh, the reflection looking back at him caused him to say dad <laughs> <laughs> you 
And that may be our situation on occasion, <laughs> that we start realizing that we are taking on characteristics of a parent looking more like them as we, we age. We're concerned about uh, our genetic makeup. If somebody's been adopted, they don't know their biological family, they typically want to search that out. They want to see if there's anything genetic uh, that might get passed down to them health-wise. Uh, what about uh, our value system? And some of you have been talking about that in terms of particulars, uh, how you deal with finances, et cetera. Uh, I think of 2 Timothy 1.5. Uh, Paul says to Timothy, I'm reminded of your uh, faith, a faith that lived first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I'm sure lives in you. Three generations, the faith was passed down. Uh, this past Thursday, I had the ple pleasure of taking a gentleman from Harvard Hills to lunch. I uh, found out at the table that day that it was his 85th birthday. Didn't know that when we set up the date, but uh, I just wanted to learn about his life because I knew he'd had a pretty interesting life. And so uh, as we visited, he was telling me about how his grandfather and his great-grandfather were very active in Churches of Christ. When you go back three generations, that's getting you back there closer and closer to restoration, beginning of the uh, early, as we know it, Church of Christ. And uh, it just reminded me that for many of us, we have deep roots in a particular expression of faith, and that gets passed down. Some of that can be really good, some of it can be barnacles for us, and we have to kind of take care of those. Uh, now, something maybe not quite so uh, positive. Uh, what about the sins of the Father? You know, I, I've, I've always been amazed at that passage in Exodus 34, 7. Uh, it says, God passes the sins or iniquities of the parents upon the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. What in the world does that mean? Sins of the parents passed down to the next generation. In fact, it's just three generations. You know, I don't think that it means that the child is going to be condemned for the parent. Uh, because in Deuteronomy 24, 16, it says, parents shall not be put to death for their children, nor shall children be put to death for their parents. Only for their own crimes may persons be put to death. So what do you think gets passed down? Sinful habits, maybe, or things that are less than ideal in terms of your ability to communicate with each other. Okay. Okay. Addictions, perhaps. Uh, consequences of the sins of the, the parents. Would, you, would it surprise you if a 24-year-old man is struggling to quit viewing pornography uh, when you realize that when he was seven years old, he found his dad's stash and started slipping in there and watching it. And then later in life, had great difficulty avoiding looking at pornography. Uh, you know, I work with uh, couples a good bit, and I never give examples of anybody around here or anything, anybody recent, because I don't want to be unconfidential in any way. But uh, this came to my attention uh, a while back. A woman was having an affair. She was married. She was having an affair. Her father had had affairs several times when she was a young girl. 
and now she's a married person, has children, and has gotten involved with somebody other than her husband. And uh, she was starting to feel some remorse about that. And so went to talk to her mother, and her mother said, uh, you've got more of your dad in you than what you realize. And boy, you could unpack that comment, you know, if you really wanted to think a little bit about the implications of that. But that's kind of a common idea, you know, that uh, we have. Uh, I think that was a very harsh thing for that mother to say to her daughter, incidentally. But it kind of conveys the idea, oh yeah, if, if your dad was unfaithful, then there's a very good likelihood that that's going to crop up in you. Uh, now, the reality is sometimes that things of that nature, sins of the father or mother, can get passed down to the next generation. Um, at least that's been my experience. Uh, also, ways of relating to others. Any of you express your anger, like your mother, your father? Uh, you know, any of you blow up and then it's all over, or maybe stuff it inside, or uh, then become resentful because people are not paying attention to your concern, or uh, maybe become passive aggressive. And you know, when you start looking into your family of origin, you realize, whoa, that looks very familiar. You know how I'm expressing my anger today. Well, those are just uh, a few examples uh, of what gets passed down. But I, I want to make a few assumptions to provide a bit of a backdrop for the rest of the, uh, the morning. Is it safe to say that nobody grows up in a perfect family? That really goes without saying, because we don't have any Cleavers or Waltons in, in here. Uh, you know, a family where everything is, everybody's mature and loving and forgiving and encouraging and, uh, you know, that family just doesn't exist. And it's a little bit intimidating. I've got my uh, married daughter and son-in-law and wife here today. You know, <laughs> they know I wasn't, uh, you know, a, a perfect father. You know, I think I did the best I could and I've uh, had to make amends as an adult uh, and probably have some other things that I need to do just because I realize in a very painful way that families are flawed. And in spite of our best atten uh, intentions, uh, we are on occasions going to uh, make it difficult for uh, our children. So how do we deal with painful experiences in our childhood? Well, just a, a, a couple of ideas to form a foundation for our conversation. You know, when we're very young, uh, in terms of our brain, and I'm certainly not an expert on brain physiology and what it does, but I do understand that the amygdala uh, develops very early, and it helps us with survival instincts. Uh, it helps us uh, understand or deal, start feeling emotions and uh, developing a memory. And so at an early age, when we bump into something that's really painful, there are some typical ways that we as children are going to respond. And I'm going to jot these on the board and we'll illustrate it a little bit. Fight, flee, or freeze. Now, let's say that uh, first or second graders in school and uh, he or she raises their hand because a question's been asked 
And when they respond, the whole class breaks into laughter. And maybe the teacher uh, says something shaming like, hey, we just went over that last week. I don't understand why, why you don't remember that. Well, if, if that was really painful, really unsettling, really traumatic to that child, uh, and if something like that is repeated a time or two, then it's likely that the child will pick from the above, will fight, flee, or freeze. Now, if, let's say, the child chose to fight and kind of develop the mentality towards school and teachers and classmates, what would the attitude of that child be? Hostile? Combative? You're not going to tell me anything? You know, I don't, I don't care if you want me to sit here. I'm not going to sit here because I choose not to. If the child decided to flee, if that was the coping mechanism, the, the way of protecting the child, what might the child do? Maybe just disengage, withdraw. I'm, I'm, not, going to, uh, I'm not going to participate in school. You know, it's a dangerous place to be. I'm just going to back away from this. Uh, what if the child decides to freeze? And I think this is almost an automatic uh, reaction. I don't think the child thinks this through because their prefrontal cortex is not in, you know, there allowing them to say, okay, now what do I need to do here? It's just an automatic reaction. God put this in us to help us stay safe when troublesome things come our way. Maybe decide to just kind of be really quiet, really invisible, not going to speak up, not going to ask any questions, not make any comments. Maybe nobody will notice, and I won't get embarrassed again later. So the child's reaction helps him or her feel safer. And so it works very well. But what if the child, once they become an adult, continues using that strategy for coping or managing hurtful situations or situations that feel threatening to them? You know, it's just it's not, going to, uh, not going to help at all. Now, another concept that I think is fundamental to our discussion is that sometimes we can get stuck developmentally. Therapists will talk about this in terms of what they call arrested development. You know, a person grows up physically, uh, but they're stuck back there someplace emotionally, maybe in a few places or several places. So maybe they're chronologically 35 years old, but they're you know, in fifth grade, or maybe they're 12 or 13, emotionally. Now, this is not a time to glance at your spouse or, you know, somebody close to you. Uh, makes it pretty difficult to have a mature relationship with someone if in some ways that person has not matured, has not grown up, so that they can look at things through rational, reasonable eyes. Now. Is it possible for us spiritually to have arrested development? That's a whole other topic, but you know, scriptures talk about that, right? Hebrews 5.12, by this time you ought to be teachers. You need someone to teach you again the basic elements of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. So the writer of Hebrews realized that as Christians, you know, we might say, yeah, I've been in the church for, or I've been a Christian for 30 years, but when you start scratching a little beneath the sivers, you realize that they're not much different than when they came into the kingdom. And so uh, we can be arrested in our development spiritually as well as emotionally. 
So if we, the bottom line is, if we have developed habitual ways of dealing uh, with painful experiences, uh, probably served us very well at an earlier age. But if we do not learn more effective strategies for dealing with ourselves and our friends and family uh, in, a, in a more mature way, then these old behaviors are gonna play out again and again and again and it's gonna create all kinds of disruption in our relationships. So how does this uh, impact our relationships? I wanna look at just a number of examples and ask you to think a little bit about what might this do uh, in our lives if, uh, or in this person's life if, uh, that, if they experience that. Let's say that a five-year-old boy you know, whose dog has just died uh, starts crying and his dad comes to him and says, hey, you know, stop crying. You know, it's just a dog, it's just an animal. You can have lots of losses in life, son, and you need to just toughen up a bit. You know, you, you just need to be stronger in dealing with that. And let's say that that message is repeated several times in the home. So you fast forward and husband and wife are going through a difficult time and she starts weeping softly and he looks at her and, and says, hey, what's going on? I mean, it's really not that big a deal. You know, there are lots of things that we don't like in life. You know, you need to just, you know, toughen up a bit. You're making too big a deal of that. Well, where'd that come from? That, that didn't come right out of his uh, current life. That, I think, came out of earlier experience where he learned certain ways to deal with his emotions. Pardon me? I said he better be a fast learner because that's yeah. not going to work with the new family. But unfortunately, I see a lot of people still trying to make those early habits work, you know, and they can't figure out, you know, what, what's wrong with my spouse? You know, my, my spouse, maybe in this case, is too emotional. You know, they just, they're just not being very rational. And so they don't get, you know, the significance of being able to express your emotions. Let's say another scenario. Child is demeaned, put down, made fun of, encouraged to think that they're less than. You know, they're just not as good as other people. And so they grow into life with that mentality. You know, I'm not quite as good as other people. Look around and evaluate self and say, boy, I wish I had more of this or that quality that that person has. So how is that going to play out in their relationships later on? Or how might it? Okay, and what might that look like? Um, setting aside their own needs, trying to go out of their way to please the other person, to always be better, to okay. achieve something, to make them Yeah, better. be very hesitant to take care of themselves, uh, you know, very much into uh, taking care of everybody else and trying to figure out what everybody else wants and trying to please them as much as possible. Uh, any other possible? Difficulties or consequences that might grow out of that? They may not be able to accept the love or the acceptance from somebody else because they'll always question it because they know that they're not that good. Okay, yeah. So it's like, okay, I hear you telling me that I'm doing a good job, but you don't know me like I know me. That can't really be true. 
And so instead of accepting affirmation or accepting uh, that other people see us in a positive way, we downplay it, minimize it, push it away, and have difficulty then uh, feeling affirmed in ourselves. What about in the area of boundaries? Very difficult to have boundaries, and with children even. So you've got children, what's that going to look like if you constantly conclude that you're less than? Kids are going to walk on us, right? They're, they're going to basically uh, tell us the way things are going to be, and it makes it very challenging for them. Okay, what about uh, a child being placed on a pedestal? You know, whatever the child wants, the child gets. Every desire is provided. You know, the parents complete the homework, let them choose, you know, where the family eats. If you're going out for dinner, uh, where the family goes on vacation. They basically follow along behind the child and pick up and do everything for the child. Okay, fast forward into that child's relationships later on. What's that going to look like? Pardon? Yeah, yeah. Why are you not, you know, picking up after me? Why are you not, you know, taking care of this for me? So kind of a sense of entitlement sets in that says, you know, this is the way people have always treated me. They've always done everything that I needed. So I don't understand why you're not doing that. And that, of course, creates uh, incredible unrest on the part of the person who's, you know, running as fast as they can, but it seems like the other person's just not, you know, jumping in and doing their part. Jim, then that might turn into them concluding that, well, since they're not doing these things, Yeah. Really. Yeah. Yeah. So many implications of this, we can't even identify all the possible implications, but that's certainly a, a great example of that. And uh, each person is going to have their own way of kind of playing this out in their actual relationships. What if a child's not taught that it's okay to have boundaries to protect him or herself? You know, so they get messages like, uh, you know, if your brother wants to come into your room, you ought to let your brother come in your room. I mean, you, you don't want to be selfish, do you? I mean, you need to, you know, share everything that you have. Uh, your, your, your sister wants to wear all your clothes, you ought to let them wear your clothes. You know, because you're not being a very good Christian if you don't share the things that you have. Uh, how might that sort of thing play out later in relationships? Yeah. Somebody says, I want this, and you say, you know, you look inside yourself and say, boy, I don't feel good about that. I really don't think that's a good idea. I, don't, I think that's going to be bad. But you say yes. <coughs> and keep on saying yes. And then you start feeling resentful because the person's not taking into consideration uh, your needs or wants. What else? I think sometimes you continue that pattern, or some people will continue that pattern, but if you if you consider the overlap of Myers-Briggs or Enneagram of what your real personality is, if you start getting in touch with that, I think you, you might even go the other way, at least for a while, where I'm not letting anybody wear my clothes sure. or anybody into my room sure. or anybody touch any of my stuff. 
you get some kind of reactionary to yeah. some of those things that you experience. Yeah. And I used to think, I see my parents are sitting here, <laughs> and I'd get mad at my I'm never doing that with my kids. And now I wonder how many of those things my kids have said, I'm never doing that with my kids. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> my parents were great, by the way. <laughs> Just had to throw that in, right? Just I mean, <laughs> uh, well, yeah. In you know, when you think about it, even in uh, our walk with Christ, I mean, if if a person is taught that they can't have any boundaries, who's this person going to be in the in the body of Christ? They're the doers. They're the ones who always say yes. You need me to do that? Yes, I can do that. Uh, I know I've got all these other six things that need to be taken care of, and I've got a family and so forth, but if you need me to do that, yes, I can do that. And then what's going to happen after a while for a person who does that? Burnout. Burnout. It's like, wow, you know, I thought if I did enough, helped enough, blessed enough, then uh, I would, you know, get to a point where people would take seriously what I need. But it doesn't always work that way. Okay, another scenario. Let's say that a child's reality gets called into question. And there are simple examples of this and a lot more profound examples, but I'll give you simple ones. You know, a child says, expresses their lot of hurt, and the parent says, you're not hurt, you're just mad at your brother. I know what's going on with you. And if the child is regularly getting feedback, being told that what they're identifying as a particular feeling is really not the feeling they have, it's really something else. Then after a while, the child starts wondering, do I really know what I feel? Can I really understand what's going on emotionally? Uh, or if the child expresses a, an opinion and the parent basically very quickly says, no, that's not right. You know, the, in our family, we think such and such. We believe such and such. And that's not, that's not really the way it is. Uh, or if the child is told, you know, in some way, you're not doing very well. And you've heard this, maybe experienced this. Child gets 98 on a paper, and the parent's concerned uh, about the two points that were missing. You know, instead of celebrating uh, how good uh, everything was, uh, the focus is on you're not good enough. You're not measuring up. So, what's the result of that going to be in an adult's life? Their, their reality is questioned. Yeah, you don't trust yourself and you rely on everybody else's opinion of something as to whether yeah. that's true. Is that likely to get you in trouble? Yep. There are lots of people in our world who would be very glad to tell us how to live our life, <laughs> what we ought to do, what we ought not, ought not to do. And if we don't have a compass inside ourselves that basically says, I know very well what I think and believe and feel and want, then uh, we're very vulnerable to the negative influences of the world. Unfortunately, there's some, some people that will pick up on that vulnerability and exploit it. Absolutely. Unfortunately. Yeah. Here's somebody that I can maneuver, and I can feel better if I can maneuver them. I can manipulate, manipulate them to be the person I want. But on a, on a maybe a simpler level, uh, if a person's reality has been challenged, they grow into adulthood, how easy is it for them to look inside themselves and tell you what they think and feel and want? 
because they, they will take a look inside and they'll say, hmm, I don't see anything in there. I'm not quite sure what's there. Because they have not been encouraged to develop that sense of who they are, what they think, what they feel, what they want. All right, another scenario. Child makes a mistake and the parent just regularly hammers that child. A lot of blame, a lot of shame. Uh, and let's say in this particular case, the child decides that it's not really safe for him or her to tell the truth. And so parents call them on something and their, their go-to is, no, I didn't do that. No, I wasn't there. You know, what makes you think that? I did such and such and such and such. And they find that some of the time that works pretty good. They can, you know, develop a certain skill at lying and it avoids some immediate pressure that the parents might apply to them. And so, uh, fast forward. Let's say this guy uh, gets home about an hour later than usual. And the wife says, hey, you know, you're home a little later than usual. And he says, yeah, I had to work late. But the truth of the matter was, he stopped, you know, to check out a golf club that he was kind of interested in. And she would not have had any concern about him doing that. It's just that anytime he feels uh, some sense of discomfort, it's like, okay, my go-to is not tell the truth. I'm not going to tell the truth about this. And so if that child continues in adulthood to kind of fudge here and there, not make it quite as straight as it needs to be, then how in the world do you develop an intimate, connected relationship with somebody who won't be truthful with you? You know, it really undermines it, makes it difficult. Okay, so what if a child grows up where uh, mom and dad fought verbally a whole lot? And uh, lots of accusations, name-calling, loud voices. And whenever that would occur, the child would run to their room, close the door, you know, uh, maybe turn on a radio or something to block out that noise. Or maybe they go out and hop on their bicycle and uh, just get away from the house. That works pretty good. But then in adulthood, uh, let's say that uh, something like that's uh, similar to that maybe is, has happened. And uh, a spouse maybe says, um, hey, I really would like to uh, go out with you. I'd like for us to go out and eat uh, Saturday night someplace. And if he's grown up with a lot of criticism and if he's uh, wanting <coughs> to move away from that, he might say something like, uh, hey, I think I do a pretty good job taking care of our marriage. And she's thinking, what? Where in the world is that coming from? I didn't say anything about you. You know, she's thinking, I didn't say anything about you in a negative way. I simply made a request. I simply said this was something that was important to me. But that illustrates, I think, how when we've got that history that we play out, uh, it doesn't really matter, uh, you know, what's going on uh, across from us because we're playing an old tape, you want to call it that. Uh, or let's say a person uh, developed a strategy of just avoiding conflict, so the spouse asks for something, and instead of addressing it, uh, he or she may say, well, I'm, I really don't want to talk about that right now. And of course, what that means is I don't ever want to talk about that. You know, we'll just put it off now and hope it never comes up again. And so they develop a habit of avoidance. Not because the spouse is hard to deal with, but because they've developed uh, that hesitancy to engage 
in conversation that has uh, a conflictual part to it. Okay, here's what's going on in our interaction with others, uh, kind of in and out of the family. I want to propose something to you for you to think about a little bit, and then I, I hope we can have some time for more conversation. I appreciate your input. Uh, at some point, a person will be in front of another person, and we're invited by the situation to engage with them in some way, uh, interact with them some way. But standing behind that person uh, is what I call uh, someone who's kind of in a ghost form. You know, it may be a father, a mother, grandparent, coach, uh, sibling. And when the person in front of us says or does something that reminds us of the ghost, then it's like we interact as if we're talking to the ghost instead of talking with the person who's right in front of us. Does that make sense? We've gotten triggered. That's, that's the word that, you know, helping professionals use. We got triggered. Uh, and there was something that was very familiar about what this person said or did, or maybe a look or something of that nature. And so we react to the ghost, whoever that ghost is. And that's where defensiveness would come in. Uh, you know, that illustration I just gave would fit that very well as well. You know, the guy says, um, when she says, I'd like to go out with you, and he says, hey, I think I'd do a pretty good job taking care of our marriage. Well, he's not talking to his wife. He's talking to maybe a parent who is very critical of him. And so we assume if somebody asks something of me, they're going to be critical of me. They're unhappy with me. They're frustrated with me. And so I need to respond in a way that would be appropriate for my parent. So how do we know if we're fully present in the here and now and uh, really operating out of our prefrontal cortex instead of our amygdala? Uh, I'll mention a, a, a few warning signs, I guess. If we undervalue ourselves, overvalue ourselves, that's a pretty good indication because we're not realizing we're all the same. We're all fallible human beings. Nobody's better than anybody else. Nobody's less than anybody else. Nobody's more than anybody else. We're all right there in the middle. If we see ourselves on one end or the other, eh, we're not probably you know, celebrating our full maturity. If we're over the top and expressing anger, and you know, if you have any issue with anger, I'm sure there are times that you've been able to look back and say, wow, where'd that come from? You know, I really lost it there. I really overdid it there. Well, Pia Melody, whom I really appreciate the writing of, says that if it's hysterical, it's historical. And that's just her, her way of saying that if, if you give more energy to a certain situation than that situation really warrants when you're looking at it rationally, then you're not dealing with the here and now, you're dealing with an old wound that just got triggered. And so you're reacting to that old wound. Another way of saying that is if you expend $25 of energy on a $5 problem, then you're, you're really out of balance in terms of uh, expressing the reality of where you are. Me, a lack of clear identity, look inside yourself, you don't know what's there. Poor boundaries, those are indications that there's a part that really needs to keep growing. It needs to get healthier, stronger, more mature. Too dependent on others, or on the other end, needless and wantless. You know, if you're the person who says, I don't need anything from anybody, 
Well, that's not very realistic, really, because if we're in a love relationship with anybody, there needs to be a mutuality there that allows us to lean on one another, but also to give to one another. So where do we go with this? What do we do with this? Well, I think we do some honest self-evaluation. You know, ask for input, input from family and friends and, you know, see what they think about our behavior. Keep growing emotionally. Uh, just as we're called to a lifetime of growth spiritually, we're called to keep growing emotionally. And we've got so many resources now uh, to help us grow. And the fact that you're having a class here at Otter Creek uh, designed to help you keep growing is an indication uh, when you look at all of these various people who are coming to talk with you about various facets of emotional growth, there's a lot of information out there and help. Seek understanding and healing uh, through reliance on God's spirit. Uh, I, uh, some of our children are attending a class on Holy Spirit and I keep getting, uh, uh, hearing about it and really kind of wanted to go hear him, whoever that teacher is, speak this morning because I think there's more available to us from the Spirit than in many cases we allow. And so as we, with God's help and the Spirit's help, uh, develop the gifts of the Spirit, we're becoming more mature. We're able to function as God intended us. Develop close friends of the same gender. Develop a group of folks. You know, if you're, you know, somebody's called a band of brothers or I guess a band of sisters, I, I don't know what, ladies call that, but a group of folks that you can feel connected to, who will support you, will give you honest feedback, though. They'll tell you, hey, Jim, that was a bit much, you know? Uh, the way you responded didn't look very mature. Uh, and of course, sometimes therapy can help. You knew I'd get around to that sooner or later, right, as a therapist? Uh, incidentally, I know it's time for me to quit. Uh, uh, I do a, a three-day family of origin intensive for people who want to bring some more healing to the areas of their life where they were really hurt in their childhood. Uh, and there are lots of resources out there like that. I can point you in the direction of uh, several intensives, several uh, therapists work uh, specifically in that area of healing childhood wounds. So thank you. I'm sorry I didn't uh, give you more time to converse with me. Uh, I've got a little handout I'm gonna give you. Children learn what they live. You've probably heard this somewhere down the line. Uh, if children live with criticism, they learn to condemn. If they live with hostility, they learn to fight, et cetera, et cetera. I'll pass that out. Uh, and uh, thank you for. Thank you, Jeff. Thank you. Uh, if you've been here at all, then you started to assist these 40 session sessions, classes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, he can't help it. Christian psychologist, and it's, it's really so good and helpful. Uh, next week, we have Dr. Alan Godwin coming. 
Dr. Goblin uh, is a psychologist and he is going to talk to you about unreasonable people. That's how people put it. Yes. And for some of you know a little bit about personality disorders, you'll get a little bit of a feel for that as well. He does this across the country, so we're really, I was thrilled that he would come and talk to us about, he even has a book called uh, How to Solve Your People Problems. So come on back, bring some other people with you and some additional chairs, maybe. Have a great rest of the day. Oh, thank you. Thanks. Appreciate it. Oh, yeah. This fit in perfectly. Well, good. What we've been, where you've been going? Yeah, where we've been going. Well, good. Excellent. Glad. I didn't want to ask you about this. Do you think that you think that churches, not just churches of Christ necessarily, oh, we need to turn that off, I guess. Uh, I just leave it in here. They come and get it afterwards. Upload it. Um, Yes, I think they would. Some of them okay. would. Some of them are not. Do you think this is biblical enough? They're just not biblical. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah. For, for me,